Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 105, Brandon Garrett, Autopsy of a Crime Lab. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Brandon Garrett. Brandon is the L. Neal Williams Jr. Professor of Law at Duke Law School, where he's the director of the Wilson Center for Science and Justice. Among other things, Brandon teaches courses on forensic evidence, scientific evidence, habeas corpus, and the death penalty. Our podcast today features Brandon's new book, Autopsy of a Crime Lab, which was recently released by the University of California Press. In it, Brandon provides a comprehensive look at the problems of forensic science today. He uses a number of high-profile wrongful conviction cases to review the flaws in various forensic disciplines. He also revisits failed attempts at forensic science reform, as well as some successes, and offers a blueprint for fixing forensics for the future. My interview with Brandon will be a combination of old and new. The problems that have plagued forensic analysis in the past and continue to do so today, but also the concerns raised by new forensic or diagnostic technologies used increasingly by the police. We talk about what brought Brandon on his journey to this point in his career, as well as his plans for the future. Brandon, delighted to have you back on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thank you. It's been a while. It's great to be back. You're, of course, widely known for your work on wrongful convictions and the relationship to problems in forensic science. I thought it would be interesting to start off today by asking you how you got started in this field. You talk in the book about starting out as a young lawyer and working on DNA exoneration cases. Is that where it all started, or does it go back further than that? Yeah, it is. And, you know, when I started out meeting people who've been freed, those cases are triumph of forensics technology, right? DNA brought to light errors. These people might have never gotten their convictions reversed had it not been for post-conviction DNA testing. And that was kind of my attitude coming in, like three cheers for forensics. It brings to light all sorts of other problems. These represented people like the exonerated five who falsely confessed, but forensics is what set them free. And then when you dig into the trial transcripts and look more carefully at those cases, a lot, for example, in the, the when they see us depiction of the exonerated five, it actually doesn't convey how before the DNA, well, there, there was DNA that excluded them at the time of trial. Why didn't anyone pay attention to that? But there was also soil comparisons, hair comparisons, all of these other forensic disciplines played a role in their wrongful conviction. And, and that case is kind of typical in that the role that bad science played and improper use of forensics played. Really, public didn't focus on it, wasn't really the subject of their appeals. Everyone focused on the, the false confessions, the brutal interrogations of those kids. And in case after case, I saw that the appeals didn't talk about the forensics. The defense lawyers didn't ask any questions about the forensics. News coverage, when someone gets exonerated, often focusing on the DNA, doesn't mention that the fingerprint evidence, the blood evidence, the hair evidence, all contributed to the wrongful convictions. 
And and that that really keyed me in that, wait a minute, there's a huge part of the story here, which is that forensic evidence played a, an outsized role in these serious wrongful convictions. And, and, there, and there wasn't enough understanding that this was a big part of the problem. Let's talk a bit about your new, comprehensive, and really wonderfully accessible book, Autopsy of a Crime Lab. Over the last two decades or so, I think there's, of course, been a lot written about the problems of forensic science and crime laboratories. What was your motivation for writing this particular book and at this particular time? In other words, why this book and why now? Like I mentioned, you know, I early on I was studying these DNA exoneree cases and the role that overstated, unreliable forensics testimony played. One impetus for me doing that early work was the National Academy of Sciences had formed a committee in the mid-2000s to start looking at what is the path forward to fix these problems in forensics. And so Peter Neufeld and I wrote a comprehensive report of what went wrong in those exoneree cases in terms of the forensics testimony. And in 2009, the National Academy of Sciences releases its landmark report. They describe a whole host of problems with forensics in this country, and nothing changes, or very little. And 2016, another group of leading scientists convened by the White House issues a scathing report talking about the need to really not rely on forensics until we've done the basic research and until we're conveying what the limitations are of the methods and very little changes. And you still have judges letting in bite mark evidence. You still have courtroom testimony looking a lot like it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. And what I started to do about a decade ago was start to do mock jury study surveying lay people around the country. What would you do? Would you convict someone based on this evidence? And what I was seeing is that now I've surveyed you know, tens of thousands of people. People assume that these different types of forensics are unique, that they're infallible. And unless they hear different, unless we counter these misperceptions, they will convict people based on evidence that could be wrong. And so my number one goal here was clearly the scientific communities and reaching the general public. People watch a lot of fictional portrayals of forensics. And in our courtrooms, they hear really something that is fiction, that there's such a thing as a perfect match and a source ID or whatever they call it. And so that my goal was to counter these misperceptions of forensics. What's your take on what the causes were originally for these problems. I think it's fair to say that at least much of the early forensic work started as an attempt to get better and more reliable evidence. And then somehow it went off the rails. So what happened? Was it a lack of awareness or some quirk of human psychology or perhaps external institutional pressures? Yeah, no, I agree that a lot of these forensic disciplines started out with police officers noticing that there's trace evidence at the crime scene and we shouldn't ignore it. We should collect it. We should look at it carefully and figure out whether there's something that we can learn from it. Some uses of forensics, even if you're just like looking at stuff under a microscope and reaching a judgment about it, are still pretty useful. Like if, if at the crime scene you find a long, straight blonde hair, it definitely didn't come from me. My hair is well increasingly graying and it's short and curly. And what's not gray is black, not blonde. And so you can exclude someone really reliably. But having made that contribution, oh, we can exclude someone. This person couldn't have left that bite because, you know, he's missing some teeth. Or this hair is blonde. Garrett couldn't have left it. The pressure was on to then say, well, who can you include? Can you use these minute traces to say that this defendant did it? 
sometimes experts started off by saying things carefully and saying, well, you know, we don't know that much about hairs. We don't know how many people might have similar hairs. But this defendant's hairs are somewhat similar. Prosecutors then maybe encouraged them or judges said, look, we can't let this in unless you're sure. Are you sure? Oh, yes, I'm sure. And then all of a sudden you had testimony in case after case with courts approving it saying, oh, yes, I'm sure the teeth made that mark. The fingerprint, it's an individualization or it's a source ID. And if people were actually expressing the limits of their methods, I think that jurors could take it into account. They wouldn't throw out the evidence, but it might actually not go as well with judges and with the public if they admitted that, look, this is, could be evidence, it's probabilistic, and we actually don't have the statistics, so we can't tell you how good it is. But, you know, we've looked at stuff in detail, and some of the details line up, so that's pretty good. That wouldn't sound very good in court. And people's jobs are at stake, and people are trying to fight crime and solve important cases, and they feel good when they're contributing to important investigations. And, and with that reinforcement over time, and with others in your discipline telling you this is okay, this is the way it's done, over time you have a disaster in the making, combined with the fact that crime labs have, have not had real quality control in this country. They're not run like scientific labs. And so when outright errors occur, no one catches it, often until it's quite really late and you have tens of thousands of cases affected. So we have problems with methods. We have problems with basic quality control. We have problems at the crime scene. You know, my book isn't to say that crime lab's bad, forensics professionals bad. No, no, no. We, I actually think we need more forensics professionals at the crime scene, for example. We shouldn't have untrained police officers collecting evidence. So we just have a really problematic system from start to finish. And in an era where we're talking about, well, what's the role of the police? How about defunding? How about funding? I really think that we actually, we need more funding for real science in criminal investigations, but not all of the slipshod work in the poor quality control, unregulated institutions that we've had in the past. I think it's interesting because your observation, which is that courts... I mean, courts in particular, but perhaps also juries and what they need in terms of informational requirements may have driven a lot of the overreaching that the forensic sciences have done in the past. And I can imagine that that might be part of the reason why studies like the National Academy or the, the PCAST report have not had a lot of traction, that in some sense the practicality of trying to litigate these cases make it difficult for anyone, even the people who want to do a good job, to, to do it. I wanted to ask you about the Houston Forensic Lab, which you highlight in your book, and which has been the subject of Sandy Thompson's book as well. The Houston Forensic Lab is kind of like a phoenix arising from the ashes, because out of a scandal in Houston, you have a lab that's really pushing the envelope in terms of scientific rigor and professionalism. Does the Houston lab offer us hope? When I had Sandy on the podcast, I asked her whether she thought Houston could be replicated in other places or whether she thought that Houston was largely unique. What do you think? Well, I love Sandy's book, and I encourage people to read Sandy's book as much as mine. Her book is called Cops and Lab Coats, and it really captures that in Houston, they moved from that model to make the lab independent. So it's not an arm of law enforcement. It's a separate corporation. I've done really interesting research. I'm still doing interesting research, collaborating with folks at the Houston Forensic Science Center. And what they're doing is that they're constantly testing their experts. So people who are doing, whether it's fingerprint work or digital or whatever the disciplines are in the lab across all six disciplines, 
about 5% of any person's casework is a test where someone can look and say, oh, actually, when you said that fingerprint was an exclusion, actually it matches, you got it wrong. And the idea is that this is not like a disaster and this person can never work there again. This is catching errors where it doesn't matter, where it is a test and where you can fix problems instead of just saying, oh, no, no, we have zero error rates, but we never check to see what they are. The idea is like you do quality control. Basic quality control is a novel thing in forensics. Clinical laboratories all have to do it. Crime labs, no, they never have had to do it. Other labs can do it. It doesn't take a horrible crisis like they had in Houston to permit it to happen. Houston's been reaching out and seeking to collaborate with other Texas labs. Some labs are sort of dipping a toe in and doing a little bit more blind testing or blind supervisory sort of verification in cases. But, you know, if it takes a crisis, there, there's certainly a lot of other labs that have had crises or shutdowns or audits. Unfortunately, they haven't really reacted to them by adopting those kind of searching changes. So Houston is a beacon, and there's a lot of good work being done to try to extend what they're doing to other labs around the country and make it more standard. But ultimately, I think that the, the way to go is to have meaningful regulation to require quality control labs. We shouldn't be requiring a labs to go through crisis and separation agreements to finally do what any real laboratory should do, which is basic quality assurance. If I can switch gears a little bit, I want to ask you about some of the relatively newer technologies that you critique toward the end of the book. For example, you talk about the field test kits for drug testing and rapid DNA, body cameras, and breathalyzers, although I suppose breathalyzers are not exactly new. It would seem to me that these kinds of field tests would be a welcome development in policing because at least they offer a relatively more objective type of evidence. You know, not perfect by any means, but surely better than a subjective police officer's impression. You raise a number of concerns about these new technologies. What are those concerns about those technologies? Yeah, so, so there's databases, there's field tests, there are a whole bunch of different ways to think about the ways that technology come into policing today. And there are really important debates at the state level, local level. People are thinking about technology and policing a lot more now, which is, which is exciting and it's a good thing. One concern is that when you have huge forensic databases, with lots of stuff in them, it can make the job of examiners more challenging, particularly where these algorithms are black box and the job of them is to pick evidence as similar as possible to what you have from a crime scene. It just makes the job of an examiner really challenging. They're gonna, if you're searching through hundreds of millions of prints, you're gonna be pulling prints that look a lot like what you found from the crime scene and it may enhance error rates, make the job more risk prone. There's more of a chance of a coincidental match to someone who's innocent. But another concern is that you can have algorithms where you don't know how good they are. They've never been error tested. That's been the case for facial recognition algorithms that have been marketed. And that's why you have some jurisdictions saying, look, we should ban them. We shouldn't even be using them. Now, these things can be used for different purposes. And, and it can be one thing to use it to generate leads and another thing to use it to actually convict someone. But no matter what, even if you're just using it to generate leads, policing agencies should want to know how good it is. How reliable is it? Has it been tested? And unfortunately, in the criminal system, whether it's a bite mark examiner or an algorithm, there just hasn't been much of a priority placed on knowing how reliable something is. 
And that should be obviously the number one priority. If you're using something because you hope it's reliable, well, hope isn't enough. It shouldn't be hope-based. It should be evidence-based. There are separate privacy concerns with including everyone's images in these big biometric data banks. And, but my, my focus here is on reliability. A separate question with testing evidence in the field and having officers who are not trained as forensic examiners putting stuff in a box to see whether they get a hit. Those kits are similarly often of unknown reliability or poorly tested or they consume evidence. And there've been all sorts of wrongful convictions based on flimsy kits. Now, if you had really accurate kits that were as good as something done in the lab, that would be great. No reason to have someone with a science background in a lab who may be backed up in their work doing something that could be done in the field cheaply and accurately. The problem is cheaply hasn't meant accurately in the past. And instead, you'd had these kits marketed and cause a whole series of different wrongful convictions in drug cases and other types of cases because they weren't reliable. So practically... What's your take on this? So what should we do in the meantime? Is it that these technologies should not be used until they are completely transparent or they're sufficiently transparent and well-tested? Or do we use them in the hope that they're better than a subjective police officer regime and then work behind the scenes to get the transparency and testing that we're looking for? Yeah, so... If we don't know how reliable something is, we shouldn't be relying on it, certainly not in court. Maybe you could rely on it as a lead in the meantime, and so it might be something useful to identify a suspect, but then you would need to rely on other evidence in court. That's fine. You're not worried about admissibility. You still may have questions about how reliable your lead is even, but you know, law enforcement often rely on leads of unknown provenance. You get an anonymous tip. You have no idea how reliable it is. That's why you do other evidence gathering. And so you can still use forensics for leads. Many techniques, you can use them to exclude people reliably because if it's a blonde hair, you know, you can be sure that it didn't come from any of the people with black hair like me. So, but to include people, to rely on it in court as evidence that a particular person did it or to connect a gun to a person or an object or whatever it is, then you need to, to be living up to a reliability standard and you need to be disclosing what level of uncertainty there is and not just acting like, oh, it's perfect evidence. And so in the meantime, before the studies are done, I'm of the view that judges should not let the evidence in. Even when the studies are done, if the technique relies on the judgments of the expert, we need to know how good this expert is. Could be that there's low error rates for fingerprinting if it's a good quality fingerprint, but how good is this fingerprint examiner? We're depending on their judgment, their experience and their training to use some kind of broadly defined methods accurately. So how good is this person? Does this person have good judgment, good eyesight? Does their experience over time make them even better at their work or do they get burned out? And uh, we don't know unless they're being tested regularly. And judges should insist on that if they're gonna call someone an expert. Now, if judges don't do it, then things will continue largely as they have unless regulators step in. Very few states have any kind of regulation. Texas has a forensic science commission and they concluded, for example, that you know bite mark evidence shall not be admitted. It's not, there hasn't been research to support it. We shouldn't be using it. We, we need more of that where we put pressure on these disciplines to actually show that they're good before we're going to rely on them. The last section of your book looks to the future. And in fact, your last chapter is entitled Fixing Forensics. 
it, to my mind, provides a pretty good wish list of things that we would want out of an ideal forensic science system. So let me make things a bit more difficult for you. What if you could only have one or perhaps two significant reforms from that wish list? What would those be and why are those the most important changes that we should make? So the National Academy of Sciences report, they said that their number one recommendation, the most important one of all, was that there be a National Institute of Forensic Science created, a federal regulatory agency, best like the FDA for food and drugs, that we need a federal regulatory body. And there, there was legislation introduced, there were some hearings in the House, some hearings in the Senate, nothing came out of it. I'll still stick with their recommendation, and it's a nice cop-out because that recommendation includes, right, the agency can do lots of the things that I've been talking about. An agency can fund the basic research. The agency can set standards for reporting and for testimony. And they can say, look, this discipline isn't ready for prime time. It's not ready yet. Or it can only be used for these purposes. It's not reliable if used for these other purposes. So creating a big federal agency, you know, it's not like new federal agencies get created every day. It may be a stretch, but it's, it's really needed. Final question for you. What's next? I know that book projects can sometimes be the capstone on a bunch of research, but they can also be the spark for a new project. Where are you planning to take your work now that the book is done? Well, I am thinking about additional book projects on different topics, but my forensics work is still very much going, and we're trying to work with colleagues as part of CSAFE, which is the Center for Statistics and Applications in Forensic Evidence. Duke's a part of that. We're doing more work to think about how to convey forensic evidence in a way that's understandable and comprehensible to jurors. And it's hard to blame forensic examiners for saying, oh, it's a source identification. If they haven't been told how to better express their results, either through research or for standards in the field. And so we're developing through these mock jury studies, how can we better convey this evidence so that people who tend to assume that this stuff is perfect can give a more careful and deliberate understanding when they hear an expert testify. We're also working to inform standards for testimony and also for reports, because, you know, most cases don't go to a trial. You have lawyers reading a lab report, and that report has to convey a lot of complicated information that a lot of us lawyers don't have the scientific literacy to understand. And so we're uh, part of larger scientific literacy efforts to try to provide that kind of continuing education to explain basic statistics concepts to people like me that don't have any quantitative background, that's why we went to law school and became lawyers. And so I think there's a lot of work to do to improve the way that these types of results are communicated. And then there's a really important need to push policy in terms of policing agencies and better crime scene responses and the push for independence in crime labs, to ward off cognitive bias, to make the work more scientific and independent. So there's no end to the work in this field. but I'm also creating large databases of case law surrounding some of these forensics disciplines. So you can see how the courts have changed in some of these areas and their approaches towards, for example, there's been a whole series of rulings where courts have restricted the testimony by firearms examiners in recent years. So we have lots and lots of work to do. And it's you know, an energizing, exciting time where, although progress has been slow, there's a lot going on in the world of forensic evidence. Well, Brandon, Thanks for a great discussion about your new book and about the challenges facing forensic science and crime labs. As always, great having you on the show. Thank you. It's great to talk to you.
As I noted during the interview, all of the problems with forensic analysis that are reviewed in Brandon's book are long-standing and frustratingly persistent. So the burning question for me is, why did they arise and why are they so sticky? One interesting answer Brandon offered in his interview is that, in effect, courts wanted it this way. For the uninformed or the non-technically inclined, perhaps false positive and false negative rates, population statistics, or the various other complexities associated with forensic and diagnostic methods are unwelcome information. The legal system wants yay or nay results, not 84.3% or answers like, well, it depends on your assumptions. Expressions of uncertainty are perceived as a sign of weakness rather than of precision. And so ironically, the legal system ends up with the most extreme and unjustified forms of forensic testimony. As I said, the legal system, in a sense, got what it asked for, which is black and white forensic conclusions, even though those might be unreliable or well overblown. That may be also why analogous problems to the ones that have plagued traditional forensic technologies like bite marks and tool marks seem to be reemerging with the new technologies, which should frankly know better. Neglecting validity studies, treating hits as matches as if they're infallible, not being transparent about assumptions and limitations, Are all these essentially what legal actors want? Do they want a cut-and-dried litmus test for guilt rather than the messy probabilities that science actually consists of? If this is indeed the case, Brandon's plans for the future focusing on mock jury studies and how we communicate technical information to non-technical audiences may in fact be the key to addressing this problem. I'm not holding my breath for a federal agency devoted to the forensic sciences. That would be great, but it's not a dream that I'm necessarily going to count on. But as an academic, a project on how we can better teach laypersons about the limitations of forensic methods and how to understand basic statistical concepts should be something that we can all get behind. That's something that we can do from the ground up and that will benefit not only criminal justice, but all legal practice over time. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.